Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamaryu, a Managing Director of Alcott Global. Our mission is to connect the supply chain ecosystem in Asia and globally by bringing forward the most interesting leaders in the industry. I'm very happy to have with us today Dr. Robert Blackburn. Robert is the President and Chairman of the Board of BVL International, which is the largest logistics non-profit organization in Europe. He's also the Senior Vice President of Global Supply Chain Management for Stanley Black & Decker, which is, which is of course the global leader in manufacturing of industrial and household tools. And prior to this, he held leadership positions at IBM and BASF. His work in the field of operations and technology spans numerous boards and industry leadership engagements. And I'm very happy that uh, he made the time to join us today. So Robert, thank you very much and pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Firstly, maybe let's start the conversation and tell a little bit the audience because not everybody, uh, especially the people are not, that are not in Europe would know. Uh, tell us a bit about BVL, uh, what the organization is about, where are you present and what's the purpose of it? So um, we were founded in 1978. Uh, we had our 40th anniversary last year. The BVL is the supply chain network, the leading supply chain network in the world, actually. Um, we're not the largest, but we are the most active and we are the leading uh, supply chain network. So what makes us special in my opinion? Um, <clears throat> we have some of the world's leading scientists and researchers who focus on um, supply chain, production, logistics, um, retail issues, um, intercontinental shipping, um, all modes actually. So the other thing that makes us really special is we're not just academic with all of those researchers and one of the largest uh, networks of universities focused around supply chain management. But we also have well over 11,000 members in Germany and around the world who are actually practitioners. So people like me who do this for a living every day of their life, take big decisions, um, look after very large, well-known companies right down to small and medium enterprises, um, consultancies, uh, for example, we have a senior partner from McKinsey and our advisory board um, on our on our board of which I'm the chairman you mentioned we have brands like BMW um, we have brands like Bosch so yes we are uh, very much focused in Europe but we have international chapters all over the world um, the US will probably interest you less in that we're here to talk a lot about Asia but Korea, we have chapters, we have chapters in China. Um, as you know, you and I came together through our chapter leader in Singapore, for example. So that's what makes BVL uh, special. It is one crazy network of experts, practitioners, researchers, universities, unique in the world, in my opinion. Mm. And, and it's, it's impressive, the number of members that you've got. I think uh, it was uh, one, one, 11,200. And, um, and I got yep, to know... They're active of, numbers, right? Active, active numbers. And I got to know of you, of course, because of the chapter in Singapore where, where I sit and you've had some, and you still have some really fantastic um, events uh, just for Singapore alone. Uh, maybe tell us and tell the audience some of the most important global and regional projects that BVL is focused on and working on. 
Well, our chapters and representatives on all of Earth's continents are looking um, after many, many projects that are specific to the markets they serve. Let me just pick out four and talk about those. So we have one of the largest uh, supply chain conferences in the world, right here where I am today in Berlin, Germany. And we have well over 3,000 people who travel from all over the world and join us here. For example, one of our keynote um, speakers, um, I think it's Wednesday evening, will be China's ambassador to Germany, Wu Ken. Um, so that just gives you one example. I could name many, many more. Um, that's one of our big focus projects. Another one is, you know, a lot of times people, most people say supply chain and don't really know what supply chain means, or they say logistics and they think of the truck around the corner. We're all of the above. And in terms of helping our industry um, in Europe and around the world, we've kicked off quite um, the logistics heroes campaign. So we take normal people like you and I out of um, industry, out of retail, out of logistics service providers, um, out of consumer companies, and we highlight them in various modes of the press, also podcasts, uh, but also print campaigns, also television. Another project, and by the way, that's people from all over the world. That's not just people here, for example, in Europe, right? Um, another thing that we do is a lot of thought leadership for our members. We, we invest a lot of money into thought leadership for members of BVL. And that's why I think a big growth opportunity for us really is in Asia. Because as you well know, Germany um, is one of the supply chain logistic leading markets on planet Earth. We produce trends and strategies, which is a survey of our very real members who, as I mentioned before, are doing this every day in big, powerful companies, big, powerful universities. Um, also in Asia, for example, Chongqi University. Um, and then finally, we have what we call, we've kicked off uh, this year, BVL Digital. So that just takes all of our knowledge, information, and members and um, puts it through all modalities, digital, if you will. So it's just four projects. I, I could go on all day, but I know we only have a limited amount of time. Mm. And, and it props into my, into my mind the question. So BVL Digital and all the knowledge associated with it, so that's strictly for the members or, or can somebody that is not a member also get access to it? Because I'm sure that some of the listeners would, would have that question. Well, most of our um, really high-end material obviously is paid for and produced by our member companies and individual members, and therefore they have access to it. However, we have a program for students, um, in particular university or even high school students, where they can get access to it. Um, I would say just visit our website and um, you know, contact us through there. Mm -hmm. Super. So I would encourage everybody listening to, to have a look there. In terms of the industry and where it is today, and, and there's a, there's an, let, let's, let's also look at the current challenges that, that are being um, 
thrown at uh, from a market perspective, from a you know context perspective of the different members that you have, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure they cover different angles. What would you say? And it's a big question because again, you, you're you're global, so then uh, of course there's going to be some local nuances. But what would you say the major challenges that your member organizations are being faced with today? Well, look, um, this is a brand new world, right? The world is coming out of its largest and longest economic expansionary period in modern history. This is a simple fact. We have a whole generation of young leaders, young supply chain professionals around the world who've not known a stagnatory or recessionary environment. Um, they've only known growth. So one of the big challenges is you now have very talented people, highly educated people taking big decisions with a lot of money um, on a global basis in Asia, in North America, in South America, obviously here in Europe, um, huge responsibilities who've uh, never faced a crisis like the one we find ourselves in now. And quite unique is this is not like the financial crisis of 2008 and 9 in the Western world or um, some of the stagnation that happened in the 90s. This is fairly unique because it is both geostrategic and it is geopolitical and the consequences for business as opposed to um, business having built over capacity, which happens in certain industries or creating its own problems. So this is very unique and these are huge challenges um, that are really starting to bite our member organizations and uh, causing them to have to respond in consequence. Mm. And how, then the next follow-up question is, how are you seeing some of the avenues in which your organization, your member organizations are trying to resolve and adapt to these challenges in which um, uh, obviously we have trade wars in which we have international um, international fluctuations, we have manufacturing being moved around supply chains being um, uh, moved around. How, how, what are, what are some of the, if you see any trends in terms of what is happening um, in, in your uh, member organizations? Well, many of our member organizations are very large in scale by definition, and then others are at the let's say small, medium end of the spectrum. So, so there, is, there is that. So let me, let me sort of take the issues you mentioned and say, yes, they are absolutely true for our larger member organizations. Um, they're not true for the smaller ones. The smaller ones, let's say, are more regional or in country in, in many cases, whatever country it may be. So first and foremost, uh, you mentioned trade wars and tariffs. So let me just say this, right? Um, all of us have to work, live, understand, and be su successful within the international legal and regulatory environment. And then all of us have to work and be successful in large organizations in many countries and all of those legal and regulatory frameworks. So obviously when geostrategic issues or geopolitical issues of which right now tariffs appears to be one of those issues impact our member organizations, it is um, from our perspective as the BDL, a very unfortunate situation, uh, which we hope comes to a close very quickly. 
Now you ask the question, how are we going about it? Listen, um, you know, I love my job and I love my job at Stanley Black and Decker and I love my role in being the BBL uh, with our board of uh, directors. And that's because I work with some of the smartest, most diligent and capable people in the world. These are people who go to work every day and look through the way, look through complexity. They're looking at factories, in some cases, in most of the world's countries, all in one company. We have other members at the other end of the spectrum that spend their careers in a particular university, in a particular country, in a particular legal framework, and they're researching and exchanging and doing network through the BDL with universities and professors all over the world who are trying to make sense of all this from an academic or thought leadership perspective. And um, we have all of the above. So our members are coming at it from a leadership develop, development perspective, from a knowledge and capability building perspective, and then just good old fashioned commercial operators. And that's how our members through the years have fared, I would say better when compared to their peer companies who are not members, because they have access to all of that intellectual capital that we provide them. Mm, got it. Um, in terms of, in terms of um, uh, again, a big topic, and mostly the questions that I'm going to be asking you today are on big topics, so um, uh, it's a fact. Um, there's, there's also a big difference between Europe and Asia in terms of uh, very basic fundamental for logistics and supply chain, which is infrastructure. Um, in Europe, it's more of a situation where there's a need for upgrades or renewal of infrastructure um, in, you know, I mean, Southeast Asia, in, I mean, let's say Myanmar, they, they're trying to, to get off the ground. A lot of greenfield projects in other places of Southeast Asia is the same. How do you see that role of infrastructure how, and how the developed versus developing nations should approach it? Because it's almost a, quite a different approach to it. Well, so obviously I can't speak for any of them, but let me just give you my perspective if I were um, accountable for infrastructure in one of these markets and all of them are different, right? So setting aside the volatility of weather patterns, which is accelerating in many parts of the world, if I were in a, let's say, less developed country when speaking about infrastructure, I would look to leapfrog the developed world. I give you an example. Um, many people talk about infrastructure and they want to talk with me about roads and bridges and airports and ports for ships to dock and all of that's important. But the future is going to be dominated by those companies who get that part right and additionally leapfrog other economies with their digital infrastructure. So, you know, you use the example, for example, of Myanmar. Um, well, let's just travel a little further east and look at Vietnam or you know, everyone wants to talk about China. Um, as 5G is rolled out, entirely new business models and capabilities in supply chain become available. Um, you know, some of that will even reduce the amount of physical infrastructure that you need. I give you the example of moving goods using drones for intralogistics. Pilots are going on all over the world. There are two of our member companies that have them in production operation today. 
Now, if we come back to the developed economy, look, today I happen to be sitting in Berlin. Um, you know, it's the capital city of Germany. Our biggest airport um, is our biggest failed project, right? We have problems with overcrowded cities. We have problems with overcrowded uh, highways and freeways. And we certainly haven't maybe looked after our bridges as well as we, we could have given that there are heavy industries here, not just the automotive industry, the chemical industry is one of the biggest industries and some of our biggest number companies um, of the BBL here in Germany. But let's go even further afield, right? Ports are overwhelmed all over the world. You're having ports expanding at an unprecedented rate. Um, given that you're coming from Asia, let's just talk about um, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? So the Belt and Road Initiative, one of the great, let's just say, inhibitors to the success of that project is all of the countries along at least the belt getting together and opening up or at least coordinating their regulatory systems to make way for infrastructure at speed. So these are different sort of just, that's the very brief, short version where we just scratch the surface across a whole range of issues. And obviously in the United States, um, where I happen to live and work right now, I can tell you um, ports are an increasingly critical issue. Obviously, everyone knows Canada, the U.S., Mexico lies between the oceans and you need ports. Those ports are incredibly overwhelmed right now. So every country, every continent has its unique issues. Um, I think we all know, for example, um, if the Panama Canal shut, much of the world's, uh, let's say, intercontinental traffic would be shut down. Let's talk about the Malacca Straits, right, where you live. Um, if we had a problem there, if we weren't able to ship through there, um, what is it? Two-thirds of the world's shipping, intercontinental goes through there. So infrastructure isn't a luxury for, polit for politicians nor for business people. Businesswomen and businessmen rely on stable, political structures to take planning decisions that can range from one year up to 10 or 15 years for investment. And that's why infrastructure becomes a major issue of focus for the BDL, and not just here in Germany or Europe, um, but around the world. Mm. I, I want to add my two cents on it because uh, I also originally am from, I'm from Europe and having lived many years now in, in Asia, what I'm observing as, um, um, as a, a difference, also a difference of pace, I guess. So in, um, well, Singapore is, is another very good uh, example of, of doing it right. So I think they've, uh, again, it's obviously the size of Singapore is not the size of uh, most countries. They, they do have the benefit of uh, obviously uh, having a smaller, uh, smaller um, and, and controlled in many ways island, but they've done a tremendous job also in connecting every, every part of the ecosystem. And with the 5G rollout, I think they're gonna do a tremendous, uh, tremendous job. Um, however, also across across Asia, what I've observed, the projects have been massive. Now, uh, Indonesia, for example, they're talking about 
potentially moving their capitals, which is which is another incredible project to undertake. Um, in China, they've they've done a number of infrastructure projects. Uh, most of them actually they've been very well planned. You you mentioned Vietnam, you mentioned Myanmar. And I think there's a big advantage, uh, and you mentioned the term leapfrogging. India as well is doing a lot uh, at the moment leapfrogging in a sense that it's easier to build when you don't have anything, uh, ironically or fundamentally, than, than maybe where uh, in Europe or US or developed markets, it's much harder to, to do it having the context and limitations of you know seeking approvals, getting everybody uh, aligned. And all, again, you're talking about five, 10 year, maybe sometimes projects that, that, that do require a consistent government, which is not always the case. So it's quite, um, it's quite a different set of challenges that, uh, that uh, again, in some ways maybe has benefited Asia and has also fueled the growth of Asia because they've been able to uh, maybe pull it off a little bit faster. I don't know if, you, if you've observed the same, same or not. Yeah, I, I agree with much of what you've said. Uh, I'll just say this. We need to keep in mind the basics. Sometimes um, when I talk to um, politicians who are perhaps haven't had as much experience as others, um, we all look to our peers in other countries and we forget their common sense context. So you just mentioned uh, quite a few very pertinent facts to the European context, right? Um, very old society, a huge number of people, at least in Central Europe, packed into um, very small spaces and so if you're planning a new train line or a new airport, you're impacting most likely communities that have been there for hundreds of years. Um, so we need to remember that. And you know, you mentioned India. Um, having been to India, I can't remember a part of my career when I wasn't in India or in China. Um, we all need to remember that's not like you know, Canada, Russia, United States of America, or even Brazil, where those are huge countries, huge open spaces. Um, understanding China's landmass is bigger than the United States landmass, but you're talking 330 million people versus what 1.2 billion. And in China, uh, excuse me, in India, with even a smaller landmass, you're talking about what about 1.3 billion people. Um, so you know, we always need to think as supply chainers, logisticians, planners. Um, be it in any part of, of the BBL's network, be it our political wing, be it our academical wing, or our practitioners, um, we need to always keep the human being in the middle of everything. And if we design our digital and physical infrastructure around the needs of the human being, we'll be welcomed um, and, and loved in those communities. If we don't, then we supply chainers and logisticians or planners, if you're in the political world, um, or in academia, we would just have as an industry or as a um, expertise as supply chain logisticians, we'll have a horrible reputation. And that's what then causes communities to protest or react. And, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't move us forward, right? So this is why, you know, if there's young aspiring supply chain optimizers out there or logistics planners or at least that want to go into for-profit or non-for-profit companies, um, those educational years are critical, very, very, very important. And it doesn't need to be a university degree, um, but, but you need to have some certifications to know how to do some of this stuff because you're impacting very real lives. 
you're impacting the environment, right? You can plan, I mean, it's a known fact, you take 60 of these intercontinental huge ships and you have more CO2 pollution being produced than with all of the automobiles and trucks on planet Earth combined. Just think about that statement. So, you know, in our world, in the supply chain network, um, BVL, we have a number of environmentally uh, consciously focused research going on as well. And shifting a little bit, and I, I have a quote from yourself, actually, where you were saying uh, in, in a publication in the past that logistics is sustainable when it's efficient. And there is certainly a lot of potential for logistics managers to reduce the volume of transport by taking strategic decisions or making changes to day-to-day -day operation. And you mentioned that the mantra is collaboration, and that is the key to success. Um, and maybe in that spirit, uh, uh, if, you can, if you can share with us, Robert, some examples or case studies where you've seen this work well in the logistics world, in your members' world, where they came together, they collaborated with great results, achieved better efficiency, productivity, also it can be sustainability. It depends on, on what KPI they measured it on, but it would be great to share some examples. So let's, let's start with um, one of my favorite hobbies, right? Um, I teach um, university students. And I also did a lot of research around supply networks. Supply networks or ecosystems, um, when collaboration works at its best, and when people look over their own corporate or country borders, logistics, works well, is sustainable for the environment, and can keep the human being in the middle point, um, not only in servicing that person in the ever demanding world of four hour windows of delivery or air transport, um, all of those things where you, you need to balance in a complex world competing demands, um, supply chainers and logisticians are at the forefront. And you know, I didn't know I'm, uh, that was my quote, but thank you for finding it. Uh, you're, a, you're a very talented person. I'll just say this. Logistics is, in fact, sustainable when it's efficient. And efficiency is attained at the highest level by linking up what many people refer to as supply chains, which is grossly outdated. We need to be thinking in supply networks. I've been saying this uh, uh, for over two decades. And supply networks are nothing more than ecosystems um, which are coordinated cross-corporate boundaries, cross-country boundaries. In fact, supply networks are even competitive ecosystems which um, when collaborated or when you collaborate within them and you coordinate them, you can save real energy, you can save real resources from planet Earth and you can also return more um, to your shareholders, your employees, to your customers, and in fact, the communities we live in. And this is a lot of the research that I have personally done. It is a lot of the research the BBL does. And our practitioners, um, for example, Stanley Black & Decker or other companies, we implement this research for the benefit of society um, genuinely for a better world. Um, at Stanley Black & Decker, we're for makers of the world, right? That's our purpose. Um, and I think that applies very much to logistics and the collaborative nature with which we work. 
could not could not agree more and um and especially i i liked the fact that you also brought up in certain situations and in a lot of situations and we even have a term for it now which is frenemies right so friends in certain contexts enemies in other contexts and uh, <laughs> we do see collaboration even even in between the competitors depending on the market and in, 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 in depending also on the interests of, of each other of each other's um i was speaking with one of our clients um on the medical device uh, side and they were they were sharing that um, they came together two or three manufacturers of medical devices and they were starting to use uh, very simple ultimately uh, they were starting to use containers together because in a lot of uh, routes and a lot of trades they did not use the full load and then if they were able to synchronize and to maximize then they would basically uh, uh, be much more effective in the way they, they utilize their capacity. So that was one, one example. But I, I also wanted to probe slightly further with you and see if, if any sort of uh, flagship type of a case study or, or um, um, I don't know, initiative that you personally maybe were involved, it can be also in IBM or in, uh, in, uh, in BASF or, or now in Black, uh, in, in, uh, in, in your current company, in, in Stanley Black & Decker or something that, that we can also share as a very good case study to maybe plant a seed uh, into what can be done in the minds of, of all listeners. So I think it's important to talk about the team you play for and not the teams that you don't. So let me uh, give you an example at Stanley Black & Decker. We are leaders in corporate social responsibility. This is clear. And um, within the context of corporate social responsibility, one of the most important responsibilities a company has and can act upon is how it consumes its resources. So we work across corporate borders um, with the goal of eliminating plastic in our supply chain by 2030. Our CEO, Jim Lurie, made this very, very clear. Um, be it Deb Geyer, who leads our corporate social responsibility and reports our CEO, or be it in my role looking after um, all of our suppliers and our, our uh, supply chains. I think what you find is we work with our suppliers, our suppliers' suppliers, and then our customers and try to influence consumer behavior such that we can have a world of sustainable packaging. Um, I don't want to go too deep into that example because today I'm here to represent the BBL and our supply chain network and not um, Stanley Black and Decker in, in the classical sense. Um, but you asked for a case and uh, that's a very real case. And I think we would run out of time if I, if I went deep into all the things that we're doing to make that case work in our ecosystem or if you will, our supply network. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and but again, I mean, sustainability is probably on the agenda of, or should be for sure, and it should be on on each individual's agenda, but also on the corporate uh, side. It's it's higher and higher, which is great to see because it's it's high time we do something and we take it very very seriously. Shifting gears again, I, I wanted to, uh, and, and again, quoting you, uh, I have these quotes from my team, so uh, I think they they definitely found found them, so you must have said it at some point, um, <laughs> or if you didn't say it, it's, it's on Google, so All right. there, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, the quotes go something to the extent that you recently visited a late, large freight forwarder, 
uh, who was planning their routes on a big chart on the wall using pens. Um, and they shared that they, in their minds, this was the most efficient method because all the employees look at the giant chart and uh, basically do it via that. But uh, of course, looking into the future, that kind of, and not even the future, the present, that kind of a system is, is bound to fail. It's not going to work. And a lot of things, most things uh, are going to be automatically matched using artificial intelligence um, and algorithms. But this example is very good in a sense of there are significant um, challenges to companies going digital, to companies applying these algorithms, to companies even getting the information in the first place in a digital format. What do you see, what have you seen as, as biggest uh, impediments, if you, if you may, in terms of this, and especially freight forwarding companies, in terms of them actually embracing digitalization and going full on? Um, and maybe we can discuss a little bit further on that. So I'll take your uh, question and I'd like, if it's okay with you, to deal with it in two ways. The first part is um, challenges for any company, also freight forwarders, in truly implementing digital technologies um, to advance their own cause um, and to support their stakeholders, all, all of the above, be it shareholders, customers, communities, employees, whatever it may be. And then the second part of that, of course, is are there situations in which you don't need certain technologies? So let's go back to the, uh, again, you and your team are, are quite diligent. That, that is a quote for me, actually. And I had actually visited uh, a freight forwarder to remain unnamed. And it was really interesting. They, they had a, an intern who which is interesting in and of itself, the generation are, that the intern came from. This is a few years ago, but at the time, I think the, the young woman was in her um, very, very early 20s. And she had covered a whole wall because she had learned that uh, the whole wall was paper, um, laminated paper, and was using a marker and basically little chit sheets to fill in. And it was interesting. I asked her, um, you know, just you're from one of the world's best universities. You're obviously a powerful young leader. Um, you happen to have a very important role here. Why are you using pen and paper? Um, and I don't know exactly when, but I believe that happened in 2015 or even 2016. In any case, um, you know, she made the case that, look, my team is not distributed across cities, countries, continents. My entire team sits right here on this floor in this corner of this room. And I said, okay, I mean, how are you using this board? She said, look, this is very simple. We can visualize with no technology exactly what the process steps are for our employees and who's done what, which, um, which parts of our logistics operations are and which process steps um, or customer calls which particular container is where. And we don't need to switch on the first computer. We don't need to call anyone. We look up at the board and area. And I said, okay, that's a pretty rare circumstance. And then um, one of the people who ran the company who was hosting me came in and said, yes, it is. And I imagine this board won't be there in three or four years. The fact is that board is still there. I happen to know this example. Um, happens to be a very good company, by the way. However, the teams are getting more distributed 
they're getting more global in nature. What is global? Global is nothing more than people sitting in multiple countries on different continents. That's my experience with global. People talk about global and they forget that everything's local. It's just a matter of how big is the supply network, how big is the ecosystem, and how distributed are the people accountable for it. And what has changed in that example is um, they have recreated that very board that this young, powerful woman, using her training and intellectual capability, had created on paper. They recreated that in a digital app. And as the business has grown and taken in new companies, uh, new customer companies, um, they've distributed that through an app. But that room still exists. It's an interesting example that, that you found. Now, coming back to the far more challenging part, having been a person who's actually implemented all sorts of digital technologies from predictive maintenance to machine learning um, to the beginnings of artificial intelligence and robotics in real manufacturing and distribution center operations, I can tell you there's nothing easy about it. And the biggest mistake, um, actually there isn't a biggest mistake. There's a, a potpourri or a handful of um, mistakes that sort of compound one another. The first is not investing enough training in the people before they have to use the technologies on the technologies that are gonna be implemented. That's the first one. The second one is taking a technology that's not ready for, I'll just say, um, you know, Americans who say ready for prime time or ready to be put into productive use and out of alpha or beta testing. Um, when you do that, you, you lose the confidence of the operators, you lose the confidence of your customers, and you lose the confidence of the team, actually. That's most critical. And then I'll just give you one and I'll stop one more. Um, another major inhibitor uh, is people forget even if you've educated your workforce, even if you've implemented all the technologies in the right way, you constantly have to be looking to upgrade. I'll give you an example. A year or so ago, I visited one of our member companies who had done a fantastic job implementing all facets of lean. It, that, wow, I have to tell you, the manufacturing and the distribution center, which were in one building, worked fantastic. However, they had been asked to implement the first um, robots for picking and packing alongside human beings. And what they forgot to tell the human beings was they were working in a growth environment and these robots weren't there to replace them. Rather, they were there to make their job easier. Well, what do you think happened? We call that in professional business, change management opportunity. Uh, this particular organization had forgotten the change management part of that. And as you can imagine, the whole lean concept, the team just lost confidence in what was going on and the whole concept. So both the expertise of lean fell apart um, because the robots and the humans weren't, I'll just call them cobots, they weren't collaborating well. So collaborating isn't just something big across companies and across ecosystems or supply networks. Collaboration can be right there in a distribution center or a factory where um, women, men, and machines need to get along and work together. And those are just, just a few of the, the issues I ran across. And every step that you go more into um, automating your factories and your distribution operations, um, 
implementing machine learning, all this stuff relies on data, all of it. And if you haven't got a, everybody is bored with data, things like master data maintenance, governance of master data. What you find is it all falls apart because all of those systems at some level, there's big words in the world now like digitalization, AI, artificial intelligence, and so, and so further and so on. However, all of it comes back to data and the analytics that you can perform on that data, which hopefully most companies like our, my company, Stanley Black & Decker, has a data lake, right, with governance around that and everything goes to that source of internal and external data. So a bit of a long explanation, but if your listeners are um, really interested in the topic, that's sort of a brief intro into how, how it really works. That's what the BVL does, right? We, we educate our members on exactly this stuff. <laughs> very very good commercial <laughs> but uh, but at the same at the same time it's it's very true i mean uh, i i i <laughs> i um i appreciate the frankness and the openness i mean it's challenges that uh, that most companies face to be, to be fair and and even in today's world where, where people like to throw around the term ai and machine learning in in actual fact still i don't know the percentage i you keep hearing different percentages but still a big chunk of companies still are on excel and and they don't really have data lakes and 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 accurate data to to perform any sort of algorithms on or enough uh, enough data to to do that so that's that's still a big challenge and your example with making sure that the human element and the human explanation and making sure that the people are on board is fundamentally again one big big missing piece where uh, a lot of these initiatives may sound good on paper may make perfect sense the roi is incredible but uh, like you rightfully mentioned the leadership forgets to get people on board change and explain that it's in their interest not to replace the people or, or whatever else um, they can they can imagine and then it all fell, falls apart so in this context and and kind of um, moving to the last part of our discussion which is about people and it is about talent i'd like to add to start by asking you what do you see as the some of the key attributes of the supply chain leaders of the future what what do they need to pay attention to is it change management is it continuous innovation is it you know the soft skill side is it the hard skill side is it they need to be coders they need to be programmers what in your mind makes a very good chief supply chain officer of the future? Um, for a chief supply chain officer you must be a lifelong learner mm. you must be collaborative you must be a leader that people want to follow and it really genuinely is true every generation who comes new into the workforce thinks differently behaves differently and needs to be led differently. I give you an example. In my particular case, I work very differently with baby boomers or Gen Xers than I do Gen Yers and millennials. And we are having our first millennials come into leadership. The next thing I'll say about the chief supply chain officer role is you really and genuinely must be able to recognize patterns from many different data points you are in fact one of a team but in fact you are one of the thought leaders of the team and so if you're not lifelong learning if you're not curious by nature um, complexity is tough to manage uh, the world's changing all the time around you i mean i i start my day every day with sort of a virtual tour around the the world events that are happening 
um, I've been doing that for years and I still, every year it seems like I know less and less, right? Um, let me come back to the broader group, right? Um, you know, at Stanley Black & Decker, like the BBL, we have a very inclusive culture. And I think that's one of the reasons I fit well in both places is the cultures are curious cultures. They're cultures where ideas win, not titles or hierarchy. And I think for, in particular, for supply chain leaders, for logistics leaders, yes, at some point, someone has to take a decision and you have to move with speed and consequence. But in many cases, you can't lean back as a leader at any level anymore and think of yourself as the boss. I genuinely do not believe that. So if I were speaking right now to leaders at all levels of an industrial company, a retail company, um, a logistics services provider, the, the companies that are members of the BDL, I'll just constrain myself to that because that's my role today. My experience has informed me that in particular with our youngest two generations, Generation Y and Millennials, you must pull them in and you must allow them to make their mistakes in taking their decisions and you must let the best ideas win. And that is what I would say to leaders of all levels of the organization. That's not directed at any one level of leader. Um, I've seen I've seen leadership styles of all sorts work, and we all know that we carry around a virtual leadership box with us, and we go into different situations. You lead differently in a crisis than you do when all the waters are just very serene and flat, and there's not even a, a whisper of a wind uh, blowing when you're when you're out sailing, right? Um, but right now, you and I are talking in October of 2019. And in October of 2019, the oceans, the seas, the lake are all choppy, to stick with the sailor's uh, analogy. Um, you know, you need leaders who can coax out the best ideas and let people spread their wings and, and execute. And, and as a leader, your job is to facilitate that and to be inclusive of all cultures. Um, I've lived many places in this world. I've led business and many different cultures of this world. And if I've learned anything, it is um, the more inclusive and accepting we are of thought, um, the better the solution comes out in particular in more complex, uh, complicated environments. And most every supply chain or a logistician who's listening to me today, whether you're managing or leading manufacturing or distribution, or a logistic service provider, or fast-moving consumer goods in an e-commerce company like Alibaba or JD.com or Amazon, um, you know the world's getting ever faster, and not one of us has the particular right answer. It's always going to come out of the team, as success always has, and success always will, in particular in the supply chain context. Well said. The final question from me, Robert. Um, in terms of the younger, younger, uh, and you mentioned Generation One, Generation, uh, well, the Millennial Generation listening to us, what would be some pieces of advice or the best piece of advice that you've received throughout your long career 
that helped you the most and you would like to share with them? Be a good teammate and always give back more than you receive. It sounds really easy. It's not. Just imagine yourself as a new young person coming out of university and starting young family. You need your job. You, you need to support your family. And there's five people at work and only one of them is going to get promoted to be the team leader, whatever your situation is. Um, my belief is the more you give back, and, and actually it was a um, mentor of mine early in my career. He told me, Robert, never, ever think about the next step or a promotion. Just do the very best you can in the role that you have. Be a good teammate and give back everything you can to those teammates around you and life will carry you. That's been true for me, and that's what I tell all four of my children. So. Mm. Thank you. Great, uh, great, um, great sharing. And, and, and funnily enough, uh, we had, um, maybe I should connect you if you don't know him, uh, Bill, who is the global head of operations for Uber Freight. And he pretty much uh, said the same thing. So that makes two of you. Uh, that, that must be definitely uh, <laughs> true. So maybe I should connect you. Do you know Bill? By, by any chance? I, I do not. And um, I can learn from everyone. And particularly, that's a radically different industry. I mean, I'm a manufacturing guy's manufacturer, right? So, yeah, but it, it's funny that, that the, the, the principles seem to be the same. The success principles seem to be the same. Uh, Robert, many thanks for the sharing. Uh, good examples and, and all the case studies you, you shared. I would again encourage everybody listening to check out BPL, go to the website and, and hopefully one day um, more people uh, listening also can join the Congress, which is happening in the next couple of days, which is probably the biggest gathering of, of logistics and supply chain professionals in, uh, in, uh, in Europe. And um, yeah, thanks again for your time and it was a pleasure um, speaking with you today. Well, you have a lovely day and uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcottglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me and if you have any suggestions on what what to do and who to invite next don't hesitate to drop me a note and if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business of course contact us as well to find out how we can help